0: Today I'm speaking with Toby Ord, a mathematician turned moral philosopher at Oxford University. His work focuses on the big picture questions facing humanity. His early work explored the ethics of global health and global poverty, and this led him to create an international society called Giving What We Can, whose members have pledged now over $3 billion to the most effective charities that they can find. Over the years, Toby has advised many groups, including the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, the US National Intelligence Council, the UK Prime Minister's Office, Cabinet Office and Government Office for Science. Thanks for coming back on the show, Toby. It's wonderful to be back. Maximisation is perilous. So what goes wrong when you try to go from, you know, doing, doing most of the good that you can to trying to do the absolute maximum?
1: Yeah, so here's how I think of it, is that... Even on, uh, let's say, utilitarianism, if you try to do that, you generally get diminishing returns. So, you could imagine kind of trying to ramp up the amount of optimizing that you're doing uh, from 0% to 100%. And as you do so, uh, the the value that you can create starts going up uh, pretty steeply at the start. Uh, But then it starts kind of tapering off uh, as you've used up a lot of the, the best opportunities. And, and there's, there's fewer things that that you're actually able to bring to bear in order to help improve the situation as you get towards the end. You, you've already used up the good opportunities, right? Uh, but then it, it gets even worse when you consider other moral theories. Um, so, if you've got moral uncertainty, as, as I think you should, uh, and you also have some, some credence that, you know, maybe there are some other things that fundamentally matter apart from happiness or, or whatever theory that you like most says. Well, there are these trade-offs uh, as you optimize for the for the main thing. Uh, there can be these trade-offs to these other components um, that get steeper and steeper as you get further along. So maybe, um, suppose uh, as well as uh, happiness, uh, it also matters how much you achieve in your life or something like that. Uh, then it may be that that many of the ways that you can improve happiness, uh, let's say in this case, involve kind of achievements, perhaps achievements in terms of charity and achievements in terms of going out in the world and accomplishing stuff. But as you get further, you can start to get these trade-offs between the two. And uh, it can be the case uh, that for this other thing that it starts going down, uh, maybe if instead we were comparing uh, happiness first and then freedom, uh, maybe the the ways that you could create the most happiness involve, uh, all, you know, it, when you try to crank up that optimization right to 100%, you're just giving up everything else uh, if need be. And so maybe there could be massive sacrifices uh, in terms of freedom or other things right at the end there. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps a, a, like a real-world example to make that concrete is if you think about, say... Trying to become a good athlete. Uh, maybe uh, you've taken up running and you want to, you know, get faster and faster times and, and you know, achieve well in that. Uh, as you start uh, doing more running, uh, you know, th- your fitness goes up and you're also feeling pretty good about it. Uh, you've, you know, got a new exciting kind of mission in your life and you, you can see your times going down and it makes you happy and excited. Uh, and so a lot of metrics are going up at the start. Uh, but then if you keep pushing it and you make running faster times. The only thing you care about, and uh, and you're willing to give up anything uh, in order to get that faster time, uh, then you may well, you know, to, to get the absolute optimum, like of all the lives that you could live, if you only care about the life that has the, the best uh, kind of running time, uh, it may be that you end up making massive sacrifices in relationships and and other aspects or career, uh, or in that case, helping people. Uh, so you can see that it's a kind of generic concept. And, and I think that the reason it comes up is that we've got all of these different opportunities uh, for improving this, this metric that we care about. And we kind of sort them in some kind of order from like the ones that, that give you the biggest bang for their buck through to the the ones that give you the least. And in doing so, you know, at the end of that list, there are some ones that just give you a very marginal benefit, but absolutely trash a whole lot of other metrics uh, for your life. And so if you're only tracking that one thing, uh, if you go all the way to those very final options, uh, while it does make your your primary metric go up, it can make uh, these other ones that you weren't tracking go down steeply.
0: Yeah, so so the basic idea is if there's multiple different things that you care about. So we'll talk about, yeah, happiness in life versus, you know, everything else that you care about, you know, having good relationships, uh, achieving things, helping others, so... Early on, when you, when you think, well, how can I be happier? You take the low hanging fruit where you do things that make you happier in some sensible way that don't come at massive cost to the, to the rest of your life. And why is it that when you go from trying to achieve, you know, 90% of the happiness that you could plausibly have to 100%, it comes at this massive cost to everything else. It's because those are the things that you were most loath to do (laughs) is to, you know, just give up your job and start taking heroin all the time. You didn't want, you didn't want, that was extremely unappealing and you wouldn't do it unless you were absolutely uh, only focused on well-being or on uh, happiness, because that's it's <laughs> you're giving up such an incredible amount.
1: Exactly, and, and this is a you know is this closely related to? The problem uh, with targets uh, in government, uh, where you you pick a couple of things like hospital waiting times, uh, and you you target that, and uh, at, at first the target does you know a pretty good job, uh, but when you're really just kind of sacrificing everything else, such as quality of care, in order to get those people through the waiting room as quickly as possible, then actually you're shooting yourself in the foot with this target. Yeah. And there's the, the same kind of issue uh, is one of the arguments for um, for risk from AI. If we try to include a lot of things into what the AI would want to optimize, and, you know, maybe we, we hope we've got everything that matters in there. Uh, we better be, <laughs> we better be right. Because if we're not, and there's something that, that mattered that we left out or that we'd got the balance between those things wrong, uh, then as it completely optimizes, uh, things could move from, oh, you know, the, the system's working well. Everything's getting better and better to, uh, things have gone catastrophically badly. I think uh, Holden Karnofsky, I, I think maybe even on the show, uh, uh, used this term, uh, maximisation is perilous. And uh, I like that. I, I think that that captures both what's one of these big problems if you have an AI agent that is maximising something, and if you have a, uh, a human agent, uh, um, uh, perhaps a, a friend or, or, or you yourself, uh, who, is, uh, who is just maximising one thing. Uh, whereas if you just ease off a little bit on the maximising, <laughs> then you've got a strategy that's much more robust. How moral uncertainty protects against the perils of utilitarianism. One thing that you can say in general with moral philosophy is that the more extreme theories, which are, um, which are say, less in keeping with, with all of our current uh, moral beliefs, are also less likely to encode like the prejudices of, of our times. And so uh, what we say in the, in the philosophy business is that they've got more reformative power They've got more ability to actually take us somewhere new and better than where we currently are. Like if we've currently got kind of moral blinkers on and there's some, there's some group who we're not paying proper attention to, uh, and their plight, then a theory with reformative power, uh, might be able to help us, uh, actually make moral progress. But it comes with the risk of, uh, you know, by having uh, more clashes with our intuitions, uh, we will end up perhaps doing things that are, that are more often intuitively bad or wrong, and that they might actually be bad or wrong. Yeah. Um, so, it's a, it's a double-edged sword uh, in this area, and one would have to be very careful when following theories uh, like that.
0: Yeah. So, you say in, in your talk that, for these reasons among others, you couldn't uh, embrace utilitarianism, um, but uh, you nonetheless thought that there were some valuable parts of it. Basically, there are some parts of utilitarianism that are appealing and good, and other parts that are, of, about which you are extremely wary. And I guess in, in your vision, effective altruism was meant to take the good and leave the leave the bad, more or less. Yeah, can you explain that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's I guess you know I certainly I wouldn't call myself a utilitarian, and I you know don't think that I am, but you know I. I've, I think there's a lot to admire in it as a moral theory, and I think that, that a, a bunch of utilitarians, such as John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, uh, you know, were you know had, had a, a lot of great ideas that really helped move society forwards. But uh, in part of my studies, in fact, what I did after all of this uh, was to start looking at uh, something called moral uncertainty, uh, where you take seriously that <laughs> that we don't know which of these moral theories, if any, uh, is is the right way uh, to act, and that. In some of these cases, if you're, you know, if you've got a bit of doubt about it, you know, it might tell you to do something. A kind of classic example is uh, is if it tells the surgeon to to kill one patient in order to transplant their organs into five other patients. In, in practice, actually, the utilitarians uh, tend to argue that actually the the negative consequences of doing that would actually make it not worth doing. Uh, but in any event, let's suppose there was some situation like that uh, where it suggested that you do it and you couldn't see a good reason not to. That it still if you're wrong about utilitarianism then you know you're probably doing something really badly wrong you know or another example would be say killing a million people to save a million and one people um you know <laughs> utilitarianism right. might say well that's just plus one you know that that's just like saving a life uh whereas uh, every other theory would say this is this is absolutely this is abominable uh, terrible, yeah. uh and so so the idea with moral uncertainty is that you kind of hedge against that and you, you, you uh, in some manner, uh, you know, up for debate as to how you do it. You consider a, a bunch of different moral theories or, or moral principles. And then you think about how convinced you are by each of them. And then you try to look at how they each apply to the situation at hand and work out some kind of, uh, best compromise between them. Um, and the kind of simplest kind of view is let just pick the theory that you've got the highest credence in and just do whatever it says. But most people who've thought about this don't endorse that and they think you've got to do something more complicated where you have to in some ways mix them together in the in the case at hand. And so uh, while I think that there is uh, a lot going for utilitarianism, uh, I think that on on some of these most unintuitive cases, they're the cases where I trust at least, and they're also the cases where I think that um, you know the, the other theories that I have some some confidence in uh, would say that it's going deeply wrong, and so I would actually just never be tempted in doing those things. Yeah, is it interesting actually? Before I thought about moral uncertainty, I thought, oh well, if if I you know if, if I think utilitarianism is a pretty good theory, oh even if I feel like I shouldn't do those things, oh, my theory's telling me I have to, <laughs> and uh, you know something along those lines. And like, there's this kind of weird conflict, whereas it's actually quite a relief uh, <laughs> to, uh, to have this this additional humility of, well, hang on a second, I don't know w- which theory is right. You know, no one does. Uh, and so if the theory would tell you to really go out on a limb and do something that, that could well be terrible, actually uh, a more sober analysis suggests,
0: uh, you know, don't do that.
1: The right decision process for doing the most good
0: can you explain what naive utilitarianism is?
1: Yeah. So many people think that utilitarianism tells us, you know, when we're making decisions to sit there and, and calculate for each of the possible options available to you, uh, how much happiness it's going to create. Um, and then to pick the one that leads to the best outcome. Now, if you haven't encountered this before, you may think that that's exactly what I said earlier, <laughs> that, that utilitarianism <laughs> is, but I, I hope I didn't uh, make this mistake uh, back then. And, uh, I think I've probably got it right. So naive utilitarianism is treating the standard of what leads to the best happiness as a uh, decision procedure. It's saying that the way we should make our decisions is in virtue of that. Whereas actually what utilitarianism says is that it's it's a criterion of rightness for different actions. So it's, it's the kind of the gold standard, the ultimate arbiter of whether you did act rightly or wrongly. Uh, but it may be that in attempting to do it, you systematically fail. And there's, this can be made clear. There's something called the paradox of, of hedonism, where even just in your own life, suppose you, you, you think that uh, having more happiness makes your life go better uh and so you're always trying to have more happiness uh and so every day when you get up you're like oh what would make me happy today you know and then you are thinking, which, which of these breakfast cereals would make me happiest and then you're having it and you're like would chewing it slower make me happier uh, <laughs> uh and so on well you're probably going kind to of end up with less happiness <laughs> than if you were just doing things a bit more normally um and uh it's not really a paradox it's just that uh constantly thinking about uh, some particular standard uh, is not always the best way to achieve it. And that was known to the early utilitarians. Uh, In fact, they wrote about this uh, quite eloquently. So, they suggested that uh, there there could be other decision procedures, uh, which are better ways of making our decisions. Um, So, it Mm. could be that even on utilitarian standards, more happiness would be created if we made our decisions in some other way. Uh, perhaps if if we are trying this naive approach of always calculating what would be best, our biases will creep in, and so we'll tend to uh, to distribute benefits to people like us uh, mm. instead of to those perhaps who were actually would need it more. Uh, indeed, there is a lot of opportunity for that, including your self-serving biases. Um, you might think, "Oh, actually, you know that 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 nice uh, thing that my friend has uh, would create more happiness if I had it," and so I'm just going to swipe it on the on the way out the door. Mm. You know, the concern is that that actually <laughs> there is quite a lot of this uh, self-regarding and and in-group bias uh, with people, and so if they were all trying to directly apply this criterion and to treat it as a decision procedure, uh, they probably would do worse than they would do uh, under some other some other methods. And for a thoroughgoing utilitarian, well, the best decision procedure is whichever one it would be that would lead to the, the most happiness. If that turns out to be to make my decisions like a Kantian would, if that really would lead to, to more of what I value, then I guess, you know, fine. I, you know, I don't, don't have a problem with it. Uh, and so one thing that's quite interesting is that utilitarianism, in some sense, is in less conflict than people might think with other moral theories, because the other moral theories are normally trying to provide. A way of making the decisions. I see. Whereas utilitarianism is potentially open to agreeing with them about their way of making decisions, if if that could be grounded in the idea that it produces more happiness. Moral trade. Suppose you're you're completely certain, and uh, you think only uh, happiness matters. Uh, so you're not worried about the moral uncertainty case. You're not worried about uh, this idea that other things might go down in that last 1% of optimization because you think this is really is the only thing that matters. Well, uh, at least if you're interested in effective altruism, uh, then you're part of a movement that involves people who care about other things uh, and you're trying to work with them towards, uh, uh, towards helping the world. And so this last kind of bit of optimization that you're doing would be very uncooperative uh, with the other people who are part of that movement. So this can be connected to a broader idea that I've written about uh, called moral trade, where the idea there is just as people often exchange goods or services uh, in order to make both of them better off. You know, this is the idea that that Adam Smith talked about. Um, if you if you pay uh, the baker for some bread, uh, you're making this exchange because you both think that, that you're better off uh, with the thing the other person had, and. You could do that not just about your self-interested preferences, but with your moral preferences. And in fact, the the theory of trade works equally well in that context. Uh, So for example, suppose there were two friends, uh, one of whom used to be a vegetarian uh, but had stopped doing it uh, because maybe they got disillusioned with uh, with some of the arguments about it. Uh, But they'd kind of gone off meat to some degree anyway, and so it wouldn't be too much of a burden if they went back to being a vegetarian. They also, uh, that person cares a lot about global poverty and their friend cares about uh, uh, factory farming and uh, vegetarianism. Mm. Well, they could potentially make a deal and say, okay, if you go back to being a vegetarian, I will uh, do this d- donating to this, uh, this charity that you keep telling me about. And they might n- each not be quite willing to do that on their own kind of moral views, uh, but to think that, that if the other person changed their behavior as well, uh, that the world really would be better off. And you can even get cases where, where they've got diametrically opposed views. Uh, perhaps there's some big issue, such as abortion or gun rights, or something where people have, have you know diametrically opposed positions, and there are charities which are diametrically opposed. And they're both thinking of donating um, to a pair of charities which are opposed with each other. And then you know that maybe they catch up for dinner and notice that this is gonna happen and they say, hang on a second. How about if instead of both donating $1,000 to this thing, uh, we instead donate our $2,000 uh, to a charity that, that while not as high on our, our list of priorities for charities, one that we actually both care about. And then instead of these, these effects basically canceling out, uh, we'll be able to produce uh, good in the world. So that, that's the general idea of, of moral trade. And you can see why the, the, Moral trade would be a good thing if it's the case that even though people have different ideas about what's right and, and these ideas can't all be correct, if they're, they're generally more often than not kind of pointing in a similar direction or something. Uh, such that when we we better satisfy the overall moral preferences of the people in the world, I think we've got some reason to expect the world to be getting better uh, in that process, in which case uh, moral trade would be a good thing. And uh, it's, yeah, an idea that can also lead to that kind of behaviour where you don't do that last little bit of, of maximising. The Value of Personal Character and Integrity the reason that uh, effective altruism focuses so much on, uh, on impact and, and um, are doing good, uh, for example, through donation, is that we're aware that there's this extremely wide uh, variation in different ways of doing good, um, whether that be perhaps the good that's done by different careers or how much good is done by donating $1,000 to different charities. And it's not as clear that one can get these kinds of improvements in terms of character. So, if you imagine someone who, say, at you know, is there an undergraduate? They're just finishing their degree, about to go off and start a, a career. And you know, if you do get them to give ten times more than the average person, and to give it ten times more effectively, you know, they may be able to do a hundred times as much good with their giving, and that may be more value than they they produce in all other aspects of their life. But if you told them to be, to be a really good character in their life, and that was the only advice, and you didn't change their career or anything else. It's not clear that you could get them to produce outcomes like that.
0: It's not clear what having a hundred times as much virtue looks like. <laughs>
1: no, <laughs> exactly, well, probably couldn't have a hundred times as much virtue, and or, you know, maybe maybe you can have a bit more virtue, and then there's a question about how much goodness does the virtue create or something. But it doesn't seem like it comes from the same kind of distribution. Um, I'm, you know, it's unlikely that there's a there's a version of me out there with some table calculating log normal distributions of virtue or something like that. And I think that that's right. But here's how I think about it: is that ultimately, in terms of the impact we end up having in the world, you could think of virtue as being a multiplier, not by you know some number between one and ten thousand or something with this huge variation, but maybe as a number between minus one and and plus one or or something like that, or, or maybe most of the the values in that range. Um, but but maybe if you're really really virtuous, you know, you're a three or something. But the fact that there is this negative bit is really relevant Um, and that if someone is, uh, it's very much possible to actually just produce bad outcomes. Um, Clearly, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried seems to be an example of this. And then if you've scaled up your impact, then you could end up with massive negative effects uh, through having a bad character. Mm. Uh, maybe by taking too many risks, maybe by um, by trampling over people on your way to trying to achieve those good outcomes, and or, or various other aspects.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so the point here is that even though virtue in practice doesn't seem to vary in these enormous ways, uh, in the same way that say the cost effectiveness of different health treatments might, or you know some problems being far more important or neglected th- th- than others you end up like all of the other stuff that you do ends up kind of getting multiplied <laughs> this number between minus one and one which which represents the kind of character that you have and therefore the sort of effects that you have on the project that you're a part of and and the people around you and maybe we'll say uh you know a typical level of virtue might be 0.3 out of one or 0.4 out of one but some meaningful fraction of people have a, <laughs> have a kind of character and integrity that's below zero which means that just usually when those people get involved in a project, they're actually causing harm, uh, even though people might not appreciate it, because they're just inclined to act like jerks, say, or they lie too much. Or, you know, when, when push comes to shove, they're just going to do something disgraceful that basically sets back their entire enterprise. And there might be might be various other mechanisms as as, as well. And then, obviously, it's very clear that uh, going from my, <laughs> minus minus uh, point two to 2 is extremely important because it determines whether you have a positive or negative impact at all.
1: Yeah, uh, and... Like another way to see some of that is that when you're scaling up on the kind of raw impact, uh, and for example, so suppose you you've noticed that when founders uh, set up their their companies, and you know some of the, these companies end up making a million dollars for the founders, some make a billion dollars, a thousand times as much. You know, this is one of these uh, heavy-tailed distributions, and then if you've got a person with bad character the The amount of damage they could do with a billion dollar company is uh, you know is like a thousand times higher as well as the, the the amount of good they could do with it is a thousand times higher. So it's especially important if someone is going to go and and try to just do generically high impact things uh, that they have a, a a positive sign on on that that overall equation uh, and not a negative one. And another way to look at that is that when you have something like um, like earning to give, because there's an intermediate step where it turns into dollars and dollars are kind of morally neutral depending depends on what you do with them or at least morally ambiguous uh, as opposed to it directly uh, helping people then there's there's more there's more need uh, to kind of vet those people for having a good character and before uh, you know joining their project or something like that yeah makes sense. How Toby released some of the highest quality photos of the Earth. I actually had been looking at uh, some beautiful pictures of uh, Saturn by the Cassini spacecraft. Amazing, just just incredible, awe inspiring uh, photographs. And I thought, wow, this is great. And just as I'd kind of finished my collection of them and you know, had a slideshow and thought, wow, I thought, oh, I've got to go and find a whole lot of the best pictures of the Earth the equivalent, right? Like fill a folder with amazing pictures of the earth. And the pictures I found were nowhere near as good, often much lower resolution, but also, you know, often JPEG-y, uh, you know, with compression artifacts or burnt out highlights um, where, you know, you couldn't see any details in the bright areas, all kinds of problems. The colors were off. And I thought, this is crazy. And uh, the more I looked into it, and, and so I, I got a bit obsessed uh, in my kind of evenings downloading these pictures of the Earth from space, yeah. I eventually had a pretty good idea of all of the photographs that have been taken by, of the Earth from space. And it turns out that there aren't that many uh, spacecraft that have taken good, good photos. Um, uh, very few, actually. The, the best distance, if you think about a portrait of a human, right, the, the best distance to take a photo of someone is from a couple of meters away. Uh, maybe one metre away would be okay, but any closer than that, they'll look distorted. And if you go much further, um, then you won't get a good photo. They'll be too small and and um, in the shot. Uh, but the equivalent is, you know, is way from the Earth to the moon. Low Earth orbit, where uh, the International Space Station is, is too close in. It's, it's like it's the equivalent to being about a centimetre away from someone's face. And uh, the moon is a bit too far out, although you can get an okay photograph. And so it turned out that it was it was mainly the Apollo program where they sent humans with extremely good cameras, with these Hasselblads, up into space, and they trained them in photography. Uh, that their photos are just. Uh, Way better than anything else that's been done. And so it's just this very short period, you know, a small number of years. Uh, And I ended up going through all uh, uh, more than 15,000 photographs from the Apollo program and uh, finding the, the best ones of the Earth from space. And then I, I found that there were these archives where people had scanned the the negatives. And even then, some of the scans were were messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them they were compressed too badly, some of them had blown out highlights, some of them they were out of focus. And for every one of my favorite images, I went and found the very best version that's been scanned. And then I found that that it was kind of surprisingly, uh, you know, using a I think aperture, uh, a uh a program for fixing up photographs, that I could actually restore them better than had been done before um you know i was kind of very shocked um that all of a sudden my photograph of the blue marble was as good or a little bit better than the one on wikipedia or the nasa website and for other photographs that were less well known i could do much better than it had been done before and eventually uh went through and uh, put in a lot of hours into creating this really nice collection and uh, made a website for them uh, called Earth Restored, uh, which you can easily find, uh, where you can just go and browse through them all. Uh, I I then I went a little bit overboard and uh, went through the mission transcripts and I managed to find out what times and days they were all taken and then get relevant parts of the mission transcripts wh- that they were saying while I were taking them and, and things like this. And so I have some kind of commentary on all of them. And uh, there's, some of these photographs have never really been seen before um, because they were, they were lost in the archives. Um, some of them say, one of them says blank, but it's actually a photo of the Earth. Um, <laughs> it, but its archive was listed as blank.